Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 197, and today's guest is Ian Schaefer, CEO and co-founder of Kindred. Starting a business is hard. Starting a business during a pandemic is even harder. Let's put another layer on top. Starting an events business where people are in person during a pandemic is incredibly hard, and let's just say timing is everything. But the best entrepreneurs persevere and find another way, and it's sometimes when you are forced to pivot that ends up being the game-changing move for your business. Ian is a serial entrepreneur who sold his last company, and his latest startup is called Kindred, which is a venture-backed professional network built to prepare executives for the future of socially responsible businesses. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics. The business of doing good and why doing the right thing can help companies thrive. Ian's background growing up and his experience working in the early days of the internet. The creation of Deep Focus, an ad agency that was focused on the evolution of advertising through social media and other emerging channels. All the details on Kindred in terms of the background story of the company and how the business evolved. Kindred's current business model and the benefits of their platform for companies and members and so much more. Okay, quick side note. It's hard to believe that we are almost up to 200 episodes of the VentureFizz podcast. We have built an amazing catalog of inspirational stories around building companies. Each episode includes lots of great advice for you to follow as well. So if you haven't checked out our past interviews, go to VentureFizz.com backslash podcast for the complete list. Oh, and one ask, please share the VentureFizz podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It definitely helps. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Ian. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Keith. Appreciate it. Yeah, we're, we're gonna we got a lot to talk about. You've done a lot as an entrepreneur, and you're building a business now that's helping other businesses be socially responsible, which is uh, you know incredible uh, effort and great timing for something like that. Very important. And uh, it got me thinking, like the you know the business of doing good, right? Um, you know, when I think about that, I think about Blake. Miskowski, who was the founder of Tom's, and he, I think, kind of like pioneered this, you know, the one-for-one -one model of the shoes, and he, you know, I read his book, Start Something That Matters, so I just think, um, you know, right now, when you look at the crazy times of 2020, living in a pandemic, when COVID first started to hit, all of a sudden, businesses started to look at themselves, like, what can we do to give back, right, and I noticed Kindred had a um, a good decisions Google sheet out there that was kind of tracking what companies were doing to try to help others because everyone was just in this weird state. So wh what does that mean as far as um, you know, being a business that is making good decisions? Because businesses want to be profitable, of course, but there's also a, you know, a, a good opportunity to do something meaningful and good. So like, wh what does all that mean? Yeah, so, well, I mean, I think there, there, there are companies who are, you know, where, where their mission is their business, right? And so, um, you know, like a Tom's, like a Warby Parker, like a Bombus, right? You know, these, these are all companies who employ the, that one-for-one -one model. And they're all, by the way, like they're still doing that, but they're doing a lot of other things too. Um, you know, and they're, they're, that, that becomes part of their unique selling proposition to, to consumers and, um, you know, a big reason to go work there as an employee. But, but there, there are plenty of companies who, you know, have mission like built into the way that they do business. It's just not necessarily part of their unique selling proposition. 
but it means that they that they can also make really like they can make much better decisions too. And when, when we talk about like good decisions and when we built that spreadsheet, it was really to draw attention to the fact that just like most issues are um, social issues in general are intersectional, meaning that, you know, everything is connected, right? So like your mental health is probably directly connected to your socioeconomic situation. Your vulnerability to, to COVID is also probably related to your socioeconomic situation. Um, you know, systemic racism is also connected to your socioeconomic um, situation. So um, the understanding that, that all of this and the most vulnerable, for example, on the front of the climate uh, crisis, you know, are also the ones in a weak uh, socioeconomic situation. So um, I think companies also are, um, you know, basically all connected as well, right? They're, they're connected certainly um, from a supply chain standpoint, but they're also connected to their communities. That means, you know, the things that they sell in those communities, their physical footprints in those communities, the people that they employ from those communities. So a good decision inside of a company even in a boardroom or even in a like 15 minute stand up meeting has the potential to affect you know hundreds of thousands or millions of people and i think that's that's what we want to really make make sure that people understand that they can be a force multiplier inside their organization simply by being confident enough to say yes like being confident enough to say yes we we must change the way that we manufacture things or use our manufacturing resources to produce PPE because that's what our communities need. Personal protective equipment, right? You, um, you know, we need to make sure that um, we are closing the salary gaps between genders inside of our organization now at a time when people need it the most, especially maybe if you're a single parent household, right? Like these are all the, the decisions that again, it's like they seem good like ethically and morally, but they're ultimately good for the stability of a company as well, for its standing with its own employees and for its standing in the communities that it operates in. And we just, you know, just want people to feel more confident in being able to make those decisions, which means just like any decision, you need the right inputs, right? You need the right data, you need the right research, like whatever it is that can either help you make a decision that you need to make or, or even justify a decision that you wanna make, we, we need to make sure people are more confident inside of these companies to make those decisions. Because at the end of the day, you know, companies aren't people, right? They don't, they don't make decisions. The people that work at those companies do. And we can't like discount that. And so, um, you know, it, we, 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 we do a very good job in social media of, of penalizing or canceling people who make bad decisions. Um, I don't know if we do a good enough job, um, you know, celebrating the people who make the good decisions. I mean, I think that, that, that was what that, uh, that crowdsource spreadsheet um, was meant to do get people comfortable with with celebrating the good decisions that the people inside of inside of these companies are making because there are a lot of inherently good people that work there. Yeah. Well, let, let's let, let's rewind the clock. Let's talk about your background. So, uh, where did you grow up, and what were you like as a child? <laughs> I uh, I grew up between uh, Staten Island, New York, and uh, a town called Manalip in New Jersey, um, not far from the Jersey Shore. Um, and literally where the cast of, of Jersey Shore went to high school. Um, oh, they, really? <laughs> it kind of followed me from Staten Island, to be honest. Um, so uh, it was, um, you know, as a kid, like, I, I, the meet, like when we left New York, I, I immediately like missed it and I felt like time slowed down. Um, you know, I moved, when we moved down there, it, it was, you know, maybe a, a less diverse 
you know, neighborhood. Um, so for me, I, I've always been culturally curious. Um, you know, not, and, and honestly, like nothing was ever enough for me culturally. Like um, I would always want to go deeper, um, you know, into rabbit holes of culture, which by the way, was really difficult to do before the internet. Um, you know, so, you know, everything from like trading VHS tapes to uh, mixtapes, right? CDs, DVDs, like I, was, I remember like recording Stretcher and Bobito on the radio, like so I can listen to them, um, you know, uh, during the day. Like, you know, these are all the, the things that, um, you know, from an early age, I was, I was really trying to explore. And, um, and I think at that point, it made me realize like, you know, being exposed to a lot of different stimulus um, was, was a good thing. I mean, my, my um, I grew up, my, my father was, um, was in market research and he was working at, um, at ABC, the network, um, in his pre Disney, um, you know, but, uh, you know, we had TV was, was a big part of my life. I mean, I, you know, I remember, um, you know, when there were things like fall sweeps or like new seasons of shows, you know, we'd be the first to see them. And my, my, and my dad was doing research screenings of them. So I was always like a pop culture. You knew the new shows that were coming out before. Like I remember I would see like People Magazine or TV Guide with the fall preview, TV preview, but you would have early access. I would, I would, I would be, I remember like seeing like, you know, comedies before, you know, before the laugh track was inserted into, like this was just like how I grew up. And it wasn't like, I, I couldn't do anything with that. There was no like you know, street cred or anything. Um, but I was just awash with popular culture. And I think, um, you know, I, that, that definitely shaped me into who I was. And, and, you know, frankly, like probably directed me, pointed me in the direction of what I wanted to do um, for a living, um, at least in the beginning of my career. But, um, you know, that was, uh, that was something that I became pretty obsessed with, which was two things I would say. One was, um, you know, figuring out like what, what would appeal to people like what people accepted, what they rejected, um, you know, kind of what and why. Um, and then also um, deconstructing everything, right? Like, so I was, I was really into um, technology as a kid. I, you know, I got my, uh, my first computer. I have it literally, it's on YouTube. I have a video of me getting my first, my Commodore 64. And, um, you know, it was uh, the first thing I did, I think I took it apart. Because I want to know, like, how does this thing work? Right. Um, and of course, put it back together. And like, you know, I, that is something that's, that's probably like been a part of like every aspect of my career as I've grown up is like kind of deconstructing and reconstructing everything. Um, and in some cases being okay if there were parts left over, um, you know, and, uh, and understanding that like, you know, everything can be retooled, remixed, um, reassembled um, in a way that was maybe even better. Um, than it was originally intended to. And those kinds of unexpected uses of technology, um, you know, really, uh, you know, motivated me um, as, as I grew as a student and as I grew as a, as a professional and ultimately as an entrepreneur. And you went to uh, George Washington University, but you, you had a very unique uh, academic pursuit where you had like a combination degree, right? Yeah. So, um, so going down to DC was, um, you know, as much as I was like into popular culture, I was also really into um, the machinations of politics and international relations. And um, I thought for a while that was what I wanted to do. I did not have a face for television. I don't even have a face for radio, much less podcasts. So this was, uh, that was my way of like trying to, um, you know, I guess, you know, drive like systemic change, I guess was through, through the system. 
And so, um, so I went down there for, for that degree and I got into the Elliott School of International Affairs, which is one of the top schools in America for that. But I, very quickly, I, uh, I lost interest, um, you know, which is probably a problem with that program at the time. It was I lost interest because of the, the, the prerequisites, like the required courses I wanted to take were actually like things that, I don't know, I just felt like I had to do and not that I wanted to do. Um, and I felt like that isn't like college for exploring the things that you want to do um, and figuring that out. And so I, I, I switched out of that program um, and I wound up doing a dual degree in um, business administration, so marketing specifically, and, um, and management information systems, which um, I would have done engineering, but they wouldn't let me. I, they, they wouldn't let me do a dual degree across schools, across business and engineering. And so management information systems was basically the engineering for business. So I did that. Um, and so I, I went and got a dual degree in those. Actually, they, they created a five-year master's degree program for me, um, but I wound up uh, leaving um, that program before I did my fifth year because the year was 1997 and, and the internet was, uh, was about to take off. Oh yeah, high flying. So, so what'd you do in, in that uh, industry at first? So um, I remember I was, uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just wanted to do something at the intersection of, of those two things of like media, entertainment and technology. Um, and as everything is at that intersection now, but very little was at that intersection back then, like maybe some like multimedia CD-ROMs or something like that. Um, but um, look, I, my, my dorm was, my freshman dorm at, at GW was one of the first in America to have high-speed internet access. So I self-taught myself a lot of stuff. Um, I, I was, you know, coding HTML at defense contractors and Unix in the summers at AT&T, um, you know, so to really get my hands dirty with that. Um, and um, and I, I just couldn't figure out like how the nerdy stuff could, could marry the, um, the sexy stuff. Um, and until I, I remember getting an issue of um, Internet World magazine, that was a thing. Um, and um, on the cover of one of those issues was a group of what I thought were cool looking people, but wearing lab coats. And I'm like, I think that is speaking to me. Right. Um, and um, those people in lab coats wound up being um, Scott Heiferman, who went on to become the founder of Meetup, but at the time was the founder of one of the first digital ad agencies. It was called iTraffic. Okay. Um, and it was a media buying agency, not even a, like a creative agency building websites. They were driving traffic to places um, and uh, internet traffic, right? And so um, I interviewed there. Um, they offered me a job with stock options. I had no idea. I knew what a job was. I didn't know what stock options were, but it sounded good. Um, and, um, and I took it. So immediately after graduation, I went and started work on the Disney account there, which yeah, like that was, that was it. I was like, all right, I'm working in entertainment, but I'm also working in technology. Mm -hmm. I'm like, these two things are going to be like the new normal. They're going to be fused together. I'm here at the ground floor. Let's do this. And so I learned a ton um, from working with Scott with the time was like, even at that time, was I think 26. Um, and just a group of people that I, that I really believed in and really were, you know, kind of building the future of what we know is internet advertising. Um, you now it's gotten completely co-opted and, and, and uh, <laughs> butchered, to be honest, um, you know, in the years since, but it was, um, it was quite pure back then. Um, and era was, you know, kind of basically driving as many people as possible to buy as much Disney swag um, at the Disney store. Um, you know, and then uh, things started going so well with Disney. And then I wound up bringing on all of their um, entertainment brands into the fray. So we started with Disney store, which was obviously e-commerce. Then we moved into entertainment. So ABC, ESPN, Disney Pictures, Touchstone Pictures, Hollywood Pictures, 
um, uh, you know, all, all of those, when we launched ESPN, the magazine, like um, ESPN subscription platform, like all of, all of those things, you know, started to get us thinking that it, the internet was not just good for commerce. Like it was also good for brand building, awareness driving, putting butts in seats, as, as we said, in the movie industry. Um, and then um, that caught the attention of Disney. Um, and then Disney hired me from uh, iTraffic to go run digital at Miramax Films. Right. So, what, so let's talk about Miramax. So, uh, you know, this is a whole new frontier still, right? Like th yeah. things are so uh, different now. Yet back then, it might have been a little bit obvious that streaming might be the future, right? Like, isn't that something? Well, it's, you know, like with a lot of things, the future uh, look, is like, looks like the stuff that you don't want to happen, right? And so, um, so one, one of the early things that started happening when I first went over to Miramax, and even in a, a couple of years before that, um, so late 90s, early 2000s, um, you know, blogs started happening. And so the movie studios who are doing research screenings in small Midwestern towns, where which they thought was pretty much cut off from 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 mainstream communication, uh, just even idea of where we were at that time. Um, you know, it sounded like those are the places that you would do research screenings because you know a group of people in you know Sheboygan, you know, going to see the the Joel Schumacher Batman film, like if they had something bad to say about it, who's going to hear them? Um, it's not like they have friends who work at like, you know, the New York times. I mean, again, this is how quaint it was just 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, it turned out that everyone started having blogs, right. And people were, were writing reviews of films that they saw in research screenings, you know, whose endings weren't even finalized, for example, who had temp scores, but they were reviewing these films and, um, and word was getting out. And a lot of movies were getting, you know, killed like dead on arrival, right. Because, the, the reviews were there from normal people before they were even getting screened for professional critics. Um, and so there was, you know, fear there. Um, fear kind of multiplied when um, piracy started happening. So, um, you know, people maybe like getting a, a screener of some sort on a CD or DVD and then uploading that to any one of the peer-to-peer -peer file sharing platforms that were there. Again, like all, like the promise of digital you know, at that time was held back by the fear of it. So, um, you know, it was, it was definitely an awkward time to be doing what we were doing. A lot of, you know, I was active in, in building um, and informing the laws around, um, you know, protecting kids on the internet through um, COPA um, legislation. Um, and, you know, just eventually, you know, started to figure out how to um, engineer positive buzz around films that deserved it. Right. Like um, it's hard to do that around a film that doesn't deserve it. But for the films that did and Miramax, you know, reputationally as an independent movie studio, um, you know, traffic in a lot of films that were quite appealing to people and were quite good. Um, you know, we had, um, you know, we were just, again, like innovating like crazy over there. You know, we're developing, um, you know, screeners that were personalized, for example, for bloggers, like actually paying attention to them, making them feel part of the process. Um, instead of the people that we were trying to keep out, um, just engendered a lot of goodwill. Now, of course, a lot of that goodwill, all of it, that all of that goodwill, um, you know, was uh, was burned um, by Harvey Weinstein himself, right? In in terms of his behavior and all of that, and you know, again, it was just uh, that was not an age of transparency, and not not like the one that we live in now. Um, you know, eventually everything came out, 
right? But back then there was a system in place shielding us, the employees, from a lot of the, the stuff that, that was going on there. All right, let's uh, dive into the world of entrepreneurship. So um, you decided to start an agency. Yeah. So, so why? And what, like, what, like, how did you see advertising at that point in time? And how did you feel you could, you know, change it? I, I generally, my, my default um, perspective on things is that everything is broken. And if it's not broken yet, it will be. And then who's going to be the one to fix it, right? And that's generally the, either the winner or the pioneer or the one who, um, you know, has a head start on everybody else. And so, um, I looked at the media and entertainment world. I saw that as broken because they were completely unprepared for what was happening um, thanks to social media, right? And in 2002, there wasn't much social media, um, at least not to the general public, but there was a lot going on in that world, um, you know, from a developer standpoint, right? And, um, you know, kind of the web 2.0 aspects of things really did give way to social media platforms around that time. And, you know, kind of, Obviously, the, the seeds were planted in things like Friendster and then MySpace, um, you know, which achieved like just a different level of culture, re cultural relevance um, around 2006 or so. Um, and then um, and then obviously Facebook. Right. But before all of that, I realized that, you know, it wasn't just the media and entertainment industry that was going to uh, get broken. It was the advertising industry, too. And they were completely unprepared um, creatively, strategically. Um, or from a media buying perspective to deal with what was going to happen. And so um, for me, I just felt like, why don't I just build an ad agency that was like post that, right? That, that was built for the new world as opposed to being, you know, the, carrying the albatross of the old world around with it. Um, you know, I just felt like, you know, for, for all the time that these other agencies, these other companies were gonna have to spend to modernize themselves, like we have already done that. Like we just started that way. Um, and it was um, a really not only compelling narrative, but a compelling product. Um, and, um, you know, I started off by focusing on the intersection of those two things and basically bringing in every entertainment company in the United States for the most part, like as a client of some sort. Um, so we started working, um, you know, the agency we called it Deep Focus, which is an homage to um, the entertainment industry. It's a cinematography term most fam made famous by um, Citizen Kane and the cinematographer, Greg Tolan there. Um, you know, but um, that, that meant it was, deep focus is seeing the background and the foreground and focus in the same shot, right? So it meant we were seeing everything. We were seeing the future in the context of the present. We were seeing the things that you thought didn't matter, but really did um, as part of the bigger picture. And so um, we just, we took that approach to market, again, worked with every movie studio, every record label, um, eventually made the pivot, um, you know, into the world of brands. Um, that was fueled by the way that we were able to um, harness the power of social media. No one can really control it, but um, we certainly harnessed it and did some, you know, legendary work um, on, you know, pop culture icons like Mad Men and The mm -hmm. Sopranos and uh, Entourage, um, you know, and uh, and just parlayed that into again working on 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 efforts for brands like you know, from Microsoft to Unilever to, to um, uh, Estee Lauder, like just a whole bunch of other companies, uh, PepsiCo, Frito-Lay, um, and, um, and created a body of work that just, you know, transcended digital. Um, and, you know, by, by, I would say by 2000 and 
2010, 2011, we're already doing television commercials. So, um, you know, I think that's, um, again, it, it, the fusion of all media into one digital construct um, was something that we were uniquely prepared for at the time, um, you know, and we're able to, um, again, uh, exploit into, um, you know, winning business that we were um, just undersized for, um, but we're able to deliver upon. Because I mean, I think if you think about the world of advertising, you're in theory, just competing for consumers attention, right? Like that's kind of the name of the game. And the landscape was changing where things were becoming social. How do we make something viral? It's multiple, you know, viewing on multiple devices, eventually, it's bite sized pieces of content. So what, like, this was all new, right? And so how did you convince brands that this is the direction you need to go? And what were some of your most memorable campaigns? You mentioned some of the brands that you work with, but like, yeah. things that you actually had you remember like, wow, that really pushed the envelope and, and succeeded or things that you thought that should have succeeded, but didn't. So we, um, we, we were tangentially involved late in the game on the Simpsons movie, right? And they did something um, interesting called Simpsonize Me, which, which gave people the ability to, for the first time, get a like Simpsons character like created in their likeness. Um, and it was algorithmic and it, it was interesting for a photo, right? But, you know, we, it got us thinking that, especially as like social media was growing, um, people were starting to represent themselves in social media with their photos. <laughs> but we now call those like avatars or avatars or whatever. But like, that was a new thing, um, you know, in the mid 2000s. And so um, we, um, we created this thing called Mad Men Yourself um, around Mad Men, where we created basically like 1950s style illustrations um, in partnership with an artist who was already doing this fantastic work. Um, her name was Dynamo, is Dynamo. Um, and um, we, uh, we created that basically like web app. Um, and if you go to Mad, if you went to madmenyourself.com, um, you know, you could create basically that likeness of yourself and everyone knew it was related to the show. Um, everyone knew that because of all the celebrities that started doing it. Um, you know, Oprah talked about it. <laughs> like it was just, it cracked through. We were at the center of like entertainment weekly's bullseye, right? Like th those are the kinds of like crossover things that started off like in the dark corners of the internet and the internet was all dark corners until like sometime in the mid two thousands when it started dictating the, the, the narration or the narrative in popular culture. Um, at first, that was, you know, uh, undercurrent, but eventually it became the current. Um, and we see now just how much of the current it is, where it's almost like television is background noise to the things that are happening online. And, and um, you know, we just, again, we figured that kind, those kinds of things out early. We did, um, you know, we did a campaign for um, a show on Court TV, which doesn't exist anymore, but um, you know, the show was called Parco PI and it was out, it was about a private investigator who um, investigated uh, infidelity basically. And we took out billboards in New York and LA, a couple of them, um, you know, that looked like they were an open letter from a woman whose husband cheated on her. And she said, I caught you cheating on me, you, you, you lying, filthy scumbag. And I paid for this billboard, you know, from our joint checking account, right? And that's all it said. No URL, no nothing. Like, you know, it was just there. And we trusted people to say, like, to want to get to the bottom of that, to do their own investigation. Um, and literally within 24 hours, that video was being talked about by like Ryan Seacrest, 
um, you know, on his national syndic nationally syndicated radio show and on Good Morning America and the Today Show. And like, again, we figured out how to hack popular culture. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that you know, when, when you do that, even for something as random as like a, sh a show like Parco P.I., Mm -hmm. Right. Or like a movie called Pulse, where we, you know, built the first homepage ad on YouTube. Pulse is like a random remake of a Korean horror film. Like, Wait, so the so, first homepage ad on YouTube, that's interesting. Yeah. And so uh, my friend Chad Hurley, that, that was an incredible experience, like figuring out basically like YouTube's ad model. Uh, it was incredible. But like that was, uh, again, it's like you, we showed that it could be done. Um, and in doing it on not just the things that people know and love, like the Sopranos, where we did like an interactive map. Um, it was the first uh, custom Google map where you could literally explore all of the, the scenes of the Sopranos in the context of their real confines in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so you could explore the Bada Boom, which was also, which was something else in real life. Um, but again, it's like satellite imagery to do it, right? These were all things that, again, like we knew could be done, but there was no like formal documentation on how to do. So we just kind of like winged it. Um, but again, like we, we started learning, like what are the levers that you can pull to get people talking about something in real life that they experienced online um, and vice versa, like the billboards, right? And so, um, you know, that just got the attention of not only the industry, but also like prospective clients and, um, you know, and helped us make a name for ourselves. And ultimately led to an acquisition, right? That's correct. Um, in 2010, um, we were acquired by um, by what was at the time a British holding company called Engine. Um, they uh, they had owned um, a legendary ad agency um, in London um, and uh, wound up owning a lot of other things in, in England. And then um, we were their first acquisition in the United States. Um, subsequently, Engine was acquired by US-based private equity um, and we were rolled up into kind of a larger um, holding company. Um, but we, you know, again, we're at the leading, bleeding edge of all of that, um, just because of the, we were the digital arm. And so I wound up expanding the deep focus brand from the United States to the UK to China um, over the course of the next seven years. It was a fascinating ride. But, you know, by the end of that seven year period, um, and a lot of things happened in between that time. Like we invented, you know, like fast content production, like the, 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 the original content studio, which we called Moment Studio. Um, you know, we, we, we did a lot of great things in that, in that span, but I also realized that there, there was a limit to which that the ad industry could reinvent, reinvent itself without blowing it up entirely. And I thought that in order for us to be what the next wave needed, the next wave of clients needed, the next wave of tech needed, we'd have to blow it up too. And no one had the patience for that. I didn't have the patience to do it. Um, you know, I don't think the, the parent company had the patience to, um, again, to like to see something blown up, like to literally like zero, how do you zero out revenue and start over? Um, you know, I just think that that was almost what was needed. Um, that yes, maybe there could have been some kind of transition, but we really had to be prepared to, to start something new. Um, and um, I don't know, it just kind of like, my, my love for advertising started wearing thin. And that was accelerated by, by, by what was becoming an increasingly detached reality which was that the things that brands were saying was very, 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 very different than the things that they were doing. Mm. And um, that conflict, like bearing witness to that conflict firsthand um, from clients, just, um, I don't know, it sowed so, so much discord inside of myself. Um, it made me realize that, um, that the art of persuasion um, can be manipulated 
Um, and we've seen that certainly in, in an election or two, right? Like these, the, the, the trust issue is a very big issue where there is a crisis of trust. And um, I just thought that um, advertising was not necessarily likely to be the thing that fixed it. Um, and that's when I became you know, really obsessed with, with figuring out not only how to repair the trust situation, but how to change behavior so that it never becomes a problem again. Well, that's a perfect segue. So uh, Kindred is the current startup that you're building. So I guess to expand on that, so what led you to start the company and uh, you know, try to tackle this space? Yeah, so um, you know, the, like some of the, some of the, the brands that we were working with were um, you know, on the one hand, like talking about the things that they were doing for the climate and on the other, like being the you know the biggest manufacturer of single-use plastics in the world, right? So it's like those two things. Like it's really difficult to reconcile that. Um, and going back to the conversation we had earlier, um, you know that that people are the ones who make decisions. Um, you know, it's really difficult. And this is one thing I learned um, in advertising, and maybe just of like running my own business, is that. People don't make a decision in the best interest of their companies. They make a decision in the best interest of their careers, right? Um, so, uh, like, very few people do have the best interest of their careers aligned with the best interest of the company, and they they're usually called the CEO. So, um, it's uh, learned a long time ago that you have to appeal to someone's better senses if you want to get the, the place that they work for to change their behavior. Um, and in thinking about that, I, I tried to look back on my career and my life and like, like try to find like some patterns that I could recognize that would lead me in the direction of, again, like figuring out how to get these companies to just behave better, frankly, um, you know, be more diverse in their hiring practices, um, be more aware of their contribution to the climate crisis, um, take care of their employees, mental health, things like that. Um, especially at a time when the narrative was changing. It used to be you know, doing good was good for business. That was, that was a very emotional argument. Um, it was starting to become practical, right? Especially in, in, in terms of uh, the climate. So the clean energy sector was blowing up, right? And we, people started seeing an end to the fossil fuel industry. And that meant that companies who made decisions to, to, to you know, reduce carbon emissions um, were getting rewarded favorably, um, you know, in the stock market. And so, um, that, that I felt like that was the opening, right? And um, and if there was a way to get companies to change their behavior, it would have to be part that argument um, and part um, making them fear what would happen if they didn't. Um, and so when I look back at um, at what was happening with companies and the way that they addressed digital transformation, um, they addressed it out of fear, most of them, right? Like they're like there are all these venture back startups that are starting digital. And we're here like trying to retrofit everything that we're doing for this new world, kind of like the way that I was talking about the ad industry, right? Or the entertainment industry. Um, most industries were dealing with that in some way and reckoning with it and others. Um, and so um, I felt like, you know what? The next era of business transformation may very well be driven by um, demand for change, social impact, um, purpose, you know, cause, like whatever people wanted to call it. Um, I just thought that the transparency of the information that people now have, were, there were that, that transparency, that information was going to be used to make decisions like which companies I should I buy more products from, um, which company should I go work for, um, which company should I trust, which company's stock should I buy, sell, or trade? Right, like these are, those are starting to become decision-making factors, and I just felt like I, I convinced myself that that was the next wave of business transformation, and so. 
um, I, I brought that idea to, uh, to primary ventures. Um, uh, uh, with a, with a, one of the, one of the partners, there was someone who I'd known for a while. And, um, and they suggested that I speak to someone who they backed multiple times, um, a gentleman by the name of Anil Agarwal, um, who had started conferences like Money 2020, which is, you know, all about the future of fintech, um, and Shop Talk, which is all about the future of retail. And if we, I thought this was the future of business, um, you know, thought that he would be a good person to talk to. Sure enough, um, you know, he convinced me to, to make Kindred a, an events company, right? A company that accelerated that business transformation by gathering people and catalyzing the conversation around it. Um, and we set out to build um, the first conference for that. Um, very, one very different than like a Davos, um, you know, or UN General Assembly in the sense that, um, it, you know, I just believed it had to be inclusive and not just for the people who are making the decisions at the tops of these companies, but also for the people who are influencing decisions. Um, in some cases, like at the ground floor of those companies. But I wanted everyone to be able to be able to participate in that conversation. So we built Kindred as an event. It was supposed to happen in May of 2020 um, for 3,000 plus people, 150 speakers at the San Diego Convention Center. Um, and then uh, in February, the NBA season was postponed. And that kind of set off a chain of events that um, that basically grounded everybody. Like no one was traveling. And this was all happening at the critical moment right before our major like ticket buying window mm -hmm. was supposed to happen. And um, we made the very difficult decision to postpone the event until September. Mm -hmm. um, eventually, September couldn't happen either. I remember back in, in May or April, um, you know, we were saying that, look, if September can't, ha can't happen, then the world has bigger problems. Sure enough. <laughs> world had a really big problem. <laughs> remember, it still does. I remember when, uh, you know, people were making decisions to send employees home, you know, kids from schools. It was like, you know, it was just a couple weeks. <laughs> yeah. I, dude, like I, I look, I, I didn't buy like a new desk until two weeks ago. Like, you know, I thought like this was, I was going to be like, you know, homebound for, for, for a few weeks. And I was, I'll see you guys soon. Um, you know, did not realize that it was going to be this long and even longer. Right. And so, um, we, um, when we, when we had to cancel September, mm -hmm. Um, and look, you know, we were as, as the way things unfolded, you know, force majeure kicked in on a bunch of the contracts that we had and we were able to recoup our money. We had raised money in January, by the way, mm -hmm. for, for kindred, the events business, right. Um, great timing you know, from some great investors. And, um, we just realized like we had to, we had to do something because COVID and all of the things that have unfolded after that. Um, including this, the second wave of the Black Lives Matter movement, which changed public sentiment on that issue. Um, and again, it, people can't forget that when Black Lives Matter burst upon the scene in 2015, I believe, like after, um, you know, because of uh, things that were happening in Ferguson, Missouri, like public sentiment was not on their side. Um, but when, when, when things started happening again and the George Floyd murder, um, you know, captured on tape really, really solidified this. Um, the calls for, for um, and putting ends to an end to systemic racism were starting to get heard loud and clear. There was a reckoning, um, you know, obviously with police departments, sure. But it was also a reckoning with what companies were doing internally um, and how they were perpetuating systemic racism. Um, whether they like believe that they were complicit or not, it was happening. 
And you only need to look further um, than the makeup of corporate boards and management teams to understand why. Um, and so um, we just felt that like the sense of urgency around the issues that we were talking about had like the volume had turned up so loud that we no longer needed to catalyze the conversation. The conversation was already catalyzed. What was now necessary was basically a API, an infrastructure, a support system for executives and leaders of both for-profits and non-profits to be able to plug themselves into so that they can, and this goes back to the good decisions spreadsheet, right? That they can feel more prepared, um, better informed, more capable of making the right decisions for their organizations without fear of the, um, the repercussions of them, um, or at least being able to um, justify why they made the decisions and things that are grounded in facts and truths um, in the experiences of people that those decisions you know, did or didn't affect. Um, and, um, and, and that's what we rebuilt Kindred as. And it was basically a eight week sprint um, you know, to get the product from an idea um, into something that we could take to market and sell. Um, and, and sell it did, um, you know, and now here we are, um, you know, three weeks after our launch, formal launch, um, you know, we have um, over 130 members um, from, you know, incredible companies from, you know, Nike to Salesforce to um, Shabani to, um, you know, B-Labs, which is a company that issues, like, you know, B Corp certifications, um, to nonprofits like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and Color of Change and, um, and Comic Relief, um, Movember. Um, I mean, these are just um, incredible companies, incredible organizations. Um, and again, like, they may not be the ones that you think are leading the charge on some, in some of these issues, but I will tell you, they're the ones who are on the path to doing so. And I think what's, what's critically important is that companies, when they commit to doing this, that people understand that the, that change does not happen overnight. It will feel like it did after it happens, but it would be the, the, the result of years and years of effort, um, again, to change um, you know, the, the reflex of what um, you know, these companies had, um, change the inertia. Um, you know, or the, or the momentum um, or the direction that the wind was blowing in, um, you know, and it's like, as the old saying goes, it's like hard to turn around a battleship. Um, but that's exactly what's happening here. Um, and I'm proud to, you know, be building, um, you know, something that enables people to make the important decisions, the good decisions um, that accelerate that change. So, you know, it's, as you alluded to, it's a, it's a membership model where you're grouped with peers and like different councils, right? So what, what can members expect to get out of it? Like, what are some of the topics that are discussed or what, you know, what, you know, what does the membership look like? Yeah. So, I, I mean, if, let's say if Kindred was a mullet, um, <laughs> it, it would be um, education in the front, community in the back. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, what's fascinating about this issue is that no matter how much you know about them, you don't know everything. Because um, the context um, is changing constantly, right? And so you're always a student. And so, um, you know, what, what really drives the Kindred experience is our programming. Um, and the programming is not meant to inspire, it's meant to inform, and it's meant to bridge the gap between your intent and your actions. So um, most of the programming that we have um, exists in workshop format. So, um, you know, we're bringing in the, the, the strongest leaders in the world um, on topics ranging from diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging to, um, you know, how to optimize supply chains for, um, you know, to, to fight climate change, 
to, um, again, like mental health in the workplace, to financial um, security, to nutritional access, right? Like all of these issues that, that companies are, um, are either addressing with their products or building into their culture as a place of work, um, you know, they're going to have access to some of the you know, most brilliant minds on all of this. And they're going to do, be doing it in a way where it's not done in just a lecture format, but they'll be able to emerge from each one of these workshops with a potential framework for action inside their organization. Um, and so that's really driving um, the, the decision for membership and the willingness of companies to pay for members, um, you know, the people who work there um, to cover those costs. Um, and so, um, so it's part programming, it's part, um, you know, you mentioned uh, council. Councils are basically are peer groups where, you know, CEOs get to have monthly meetings with other CEOs across industries to be able to discuss all of these issues that are, um, you know, certainly bigger than any boardroom, but have become um, an important part of the conversation in all of their boardrooms. And so um, CEOs, CMOs, chief revenue officers, chief diversity officers, um, chief sustainability officers, um, you know, and the teams that report up into them, you know, everyone has a peer group that they're able to talk about these things. They're facilitated by um, leadership experts, um, and they're designed, again, to help people feel more comfortable about making the decisions that they need to, they need to make on behalf of their organizations. Um, you know, we've also got a, a great collaboration environment, which currently exists within a Slack workspace, um, where everyone is literally a button press away from anybody and a button press away from, frankly, a potentially an industry changing or world affecting collaboration. Um, I've seen, um, we've already, <laughs> already seen an impact on like company announcements at the UN General Assembly, for example, and that was even before we formally launched. Um, and then the last thing that we provide everybody, again, in the spirit of helping to make decisions easier to make, um, is that um, we have a, a platform called Concierge, which is basically every member of Kindred get ac gets access to um, what is effectively a virtualized uh, research assistant. So if you've got a decision that you need to make around, um, you know, for example, air pollution, and you know enough to be dangerous, but really need some um, expert knowledge around that, um, our concierge team will go out there and assemble that for you. It gets you smart on a topic really quickly um, or give you the inputs that you need to, you know, inform um, that decision inside of your organization. So that is effectively, you know, the, the kindred experience. Um, there are going to be things that we introduce, you know, in the coming days, weeks, and months, um, like working groups, for example. So bringing, um, accelerating coalition building amongst different organizations, including between for-profits and non-profits, so that they can accelerate the rate of change that's going to happen and get to winning results quicker. Winning results in society and winning results, you know, on the balance sheet too. These two, these things are, are not mutually exclusive anymore. So, um, so again, it's just, we're, we're here to, again, not only make those decisions easier, um, you know, but also to um, make them happen more often. And, um, and that, that's how we're building Kindred. Um, and I do really think about it as, you know, an API. Um, so, um, you know, that, that's the technology background seeping into it. But um, I think that everyone needs to feel that they're stronger for having access to it, that they're better for having access to it, that they're more extensible um, for having access to it. And I think that will help the companies that they work for, and they most certainly will help their careers as well. Well, what's cool about it is you're building the foundation to help accelerate doing good at exponential levels based on the success of your company. So it's like a spiderweb effect of hopefully blossoming companies to make great decisions that ultimately affects society or just, you know, better business or whatever the case may be. You know, when, um, 
a good example is Walmart, right? So um, the, the Walmart um, has been uh, heavily criticized over the last 30 years for, um, you know, putting a negative, creating a negative impact on like mom and pop, like retail businesses and sides of communities, right? Um, and it's why, you know, Walmart in their TV advertising now, for example, talks about the number of jobs that they create, right? Because that was what was taken away. Mm-hmm. Um, not just local jobs, but local wealth, um, you know, com- just communities in general um, buying from each other as opposed to like this global monolithic uh, corporation. Um, but think about it a different way because um, that definitely happened. But like when Walmart makes a supply chain decision, when they say we will only purchase, you know, materials from suppliers or, or, or um, products from suppliers that don't negatively contribute to uh, climate change or that have a, a story behind them. Like, um, you know, there is a, like, like Unilever makes a, a product called Right to Shower, which is a line of shower uh, products, like soap products, where, um, you know, they provide actual like uh, sanitation for, um, for people who are homeless in cities mm-hmm. and other communities, right? So for every product that you buy, they're making sure, like they're building pop-up showers for homeless people to shower. It's, it's an incredible thing. And, um, and Walmart favors those kinds of products. And you're, you're seeing it in the shelf space. When you walk into a Walmart, it's not just like head and shoulders for three shelves. It's like these other products many times with, with um, meaningful stories behind them with founders who are diverse. Mm-hmm. So like these are like real things that are going on that Walmart's like, again, like these are decisions that affect Walmart stores. But when you actually like extrapolate like the impact of those decisions, they're world changing decisions. And it's not, that's not just the decision that Walmart makes. Like lots of other companies can make decisions that have that kind of, those kinds of reverberative effects. Um, and I think, you know, again, like companies that, that are making those decisions should be rewarded and they should be rewarded by the attention that we pay to them, by the, the money we give to them as, as customers. Um, but they should also still be held accountable. Um, and I think that's, um, they should hold themselves accountable for sure. But they also need to make, you know, put enough information out there to subject themselves to accountability, um, you know, by the general population. And I think that that's what's happening now. Um, I don't think there's any turning back from that. It's why there's so much mis and disinformation now, because you can't hide the truth. Like you can only muck it up now. And I think that's, um, you know, I think we, uh, companies who, who muck it up, muck up the truth are going to be perceived as the bad actors they are. Um, you know, I, I, I just hope that media companies find, um, you know, f- find that um, result um, in the same way that, you know, a lot of the consumer packaged goods companies have figured it out. So, so what, what have you noticed as far as building, you know, you're building a company that now is a platform, right? Versus before you ran a very successful agency. So the differences that you've seen of running a you know, more product oriented business versus a services business. Um, scalability for one, um, you know, w- when you're running an agency, um, everyone thinks it's like you're selling ideas, um, or, you know, or strategy or any of that stuff. No one's buying that. And if they're doing anything with it, they're stealing it. Mm-hmm. Um, what they're really buying are the hours that it takes to come up with those things. 
um, and negotiating that down <laughs> um, every chance that they get, right? You, so you don't get the, um, you know, there's that Picasso story that's probably been completely uh, fantasized, but you know, where it's like, you know, someone comes up to him and they ask him to, to write a drawing on a napkin or, or create a drawing on a napkin and he does it. And he's like, that'll be $50,000. And the person asking for it said, well, that took you 10 seconds to do. He's like, no, it took me 50 years to do. Mm -hmm. um, agencies don't get to do that, right? Agencies, like for whatever time, like it's like a punch clock system. Everyone's keeping timesheets. So you can only sell as many hours as you can produce, which means that if you bring in a new client, you have to hire new people. So there's almost zero scalability there. It's why so many agencies for a while, you know, went head headstrong into programmatic advertising. Like, so buying advertising on ad networks, because um, that was a way for them to spend less time to buy more stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and that created margin. Um, but that was relatively short lived uh, because if every dollar is going to Google and Facebook anyway, um, you know, a lot of advertisers might as well do that in house. So, um, again, there was just always downward pressure on the scalability and the margins inside of an agency business. And it's why that industry is gonna have its work cut out for them um, you know, over the next decade. Um, with, with an organization like this, um, you know, the, the experience that, that a member gets out of joining Kindred or, or out of their membership in Kindred, um, you know, part of that is a result of what they put in, right? So um, it's with any community. Like you, it's hard, to, like if you're a passive member of a community, you're always gonna have a subpar experience to somebody who is an active member of that community. Um, or even even in, in fits and starts. So um, we encourage like engagement with, um, you know, with everything that Kindred has to offer. And we believe that, you know, the more that you engage with it, again, like you, within your own um, bandwidth, you know, the, 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 the stronger of the value there is. And, and when we create programming for our members, we're providing it both live in a workshop format, but also on demand. It's kind of like the Peloton model, right? And so, right. you know, when you're on a bike, um, you're in a live class. It's just a different experience than you do when you ride on demand, but it's, it's, it's still good. Mm -hmm. um, and it's still helpful and you still get, you still get the physical benefits of doing it. So, um, you know, I think, you know, by creating educational content that can have that kind of dual lifespan, like there's more scalability comes in. We have one session that can service the needs of like thousands of people. Um, as opposed to, you know, one session per person, which is, you know, basically like what the advertising business is, right? And so um, I, I just think inherently there's more scalability of it. I think, um, yeah, I think we'll continue to go deeper into the world of education um, just because I see like that is the biggest gap that exists inside of companies. And I think that's where, um, you know, their money will need to go. Um, I think it'll be different this time than it was um, like it used to be about risk mitigation when they were doing professional training and development, like preventing people from leaving or, you know, uh, insurance, um, lowering insurance risks by doing like sexual harassment training, for example. Um, I think this is more about like, again, like better decisions for the company. Um, and so this will be, um, I, I just, I just feel like, like employee education, training, development, um, those budgets are going to be growing. Um, and we're very well poised to deliver against those. Um, and again, provide the companies, you know, the tools that they need um, to not only survive, but thrive in a world where stakeholder capitalism is becoming the norm. For companies that are just starting out now and kind of have the luxury of painting their own mission statement, vision, charitable, give back efforts, 
Do you think it's critical for new brands or companies to have some type of alignment to some worthy cause, mission, charitable type of effort? I don't think it's necessary. Um, I don't know if that's the answer that you were expecting. Well, um, I, like it was an honest answer because I just think sometimes it's force-fed. Like with, like I think entrepreneurs now, like, oh, I, I need to be following this mission that you know the Warby Parkers of the world are doing. Yeah, and, no, I, like if it's if it's not, you know, who you are as a founder, and if it's not, you know, what you want to build the company to be, then I think it's okay. Like it's okay for your mission to be like we just make money. That's all we do. But you have to, if that's your mission, you have to stay true to that too, right? And so um, it's okay to like be on the side. I really do think it's okay to be on the sidelines. Your business, like, I don't, I don't know if that's the best business decision, right, in the long run, but it's, um, I think it's a, it's a valid choice to make and a valid decision to make. Um, just know that, like, for example, with Coinbase, because <laughs> um, that was a big uh, topic of discussion and still is. Um, it's like, you can't keep those conversations out They're Like, you know, corporate culture and popular culture, those lines are like permanently blurred. Like, you know, we used to talk about like, oh, we're, you know, like, you know, we, we want to be the water cooler conversation when water cooler is slack, <laughs> right? Like when everyone is like always connected, um, and not just like, you know, shooting the bull around the water cooler. Um, and memes are a way of like you communicate like business decisions as much as you communicate, um, you know, what you saw on Saturday Night Live that weekend. Like um, it's over. Like there's no keeping it out. So it's like you could say that like that's the thing that people talk about and that's fine, but it's not the filter or lens that we're making all of our decisions through. Cool. Just be clear about it. And like that's, you know, people will decide if that's someone they want to transact with or work for. Um but if you do say that, and I strongly believe that companies should have some kind of mission at the very least internally, if not externally, you give people like a, a reason to work there beyond a paycheck. And even in a crappy um, labor environment, like the one we have now where unemployment is at historic levels, people still want a reason to work where they work. They still want to feel like they're a part of something bigger that the thing that they're doing isn't just making the person at the top rich. It's, it's benefiting their community. Like all of those things, these are, it's human nature. We just know now that there are so many more levers that we can pull to, to make that effect happen. So um, I, I just think it's a really good business decision to have mission as a lens by which you make your corporate decisions through. It doesn't even need to be the lens that you make your advertising decisions through. I'd rather it not like get the corporate decisions right first before you go to the advertising. Cause if you do it in the other order, you're going to get called out and not just by like journalists, like you're going to get called out by, and not by activists, just by activists either, Like you're going to get called out by the people that work for you. Right. Um, I mean, look, I mean, you have people walking out of the government right now, literally right now. Right. Um, you know, so it's uh, where if, if, if the place that you work for, if, if you don't feel like you have value alignment there, you are going to be more likely to leave. And the fact that we've, we're seeing that happen, even in a really bad labor market, is all, the, is all you need to know about what's going to happen when that labor market rebounds. I don't think it's going to change people's attitudes about it. I actually think it's going to make them feel like they have more leverage, um, you know, in, in where to work um, than they have than ever before. So, um, yeah, I think it's totally cool to sit on that, like, just to be like an apolitical, a, um, 
I don't know, like neutral company about, about a lot of issues. That's fine. It's just that you have to be prepared to deal with the repercussions of that. So we're all spending a lot of time on Zoom these days. And uh, I saw you had an interesting post on LinkedIn saying that uh, you created the end the damn, Zoom end the damn call pedal. <laughs> <laughs> so um, look, there's, uh, there's definitely fatigue that happens when you stare like we basically replaced looking at another human being with looking at a screen. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say like, you know, Apple, like this is a feature that no one ever talks about, but the fact that they, like when you're, when you're doing a, like a FaceTime call with somebody, like it's not only where they place the camera, but they actually use AI to make it feel like you're looking into the eyes of the person that you're talking to. Mm. That is not, that, that, that doesn't happen with zoom. So like, like right, like right now, like I'm looking at a camera above my monitor and not into your eyes. And if I look into your eyes, it, you won't feel like I'm looking at you. Mm, so okay. it's just this weird um, social dynamic that's been created. Um, and like I said, like I like to find where the broken stuff is, take it apart and then put it back together. <laughs> so um, one of the things that really bothered me about vid all video conferencing, not just Zoom, was that when you're ending a conversation, there's this awkward period where you have to find the buttons to press to lead it. Like, you can't just say like, all right, see ya and walk away. Right. Like you actually, like there's prolonged weird eye contact. <laughs> so um, I don't know, I just, I, I got obsessed with fixing it. And so um, I wanted, I, I bought a, um, a pedal that I think would normally be used for dictation. Okay. Um, and, um, rigged it to be a, like to output a single button press. And then I had to, then I created a keyboard macro that when it, when it read that button press coming from that button, that mm -hmm. pedal, it would issue a series of commands that would end a conference call or video. <laughs> so now it's not just zoom, it's Google meet, it's blue jeans, it's yep. WebEx, whatever it is. I know when I end a conversation, I can look dead into your eyes and say goodbye and just like tap the pedal with my foot and it's over. You need to patent <laughs> that. You need the patent. It's little that. things. I like sometimes I look forward to calls just so I can hang up. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, you can check out uh, Ian's profile on LinkedIn and see it in action because it, it was a pretty cool uh, video. Um, what are three apps that you can't live without? <laughs> three apps. Um, Three apps that I can't run out. I actually um, made sure that I didn't forget what they were. So the the first is is Twitter, and I will say this like from now until the end of time. Um, mm -hmm. You know the the way I, everyone's Twitter is different. Obviously, the way I've um, I've pruned my Twitter is is I think a, a representation of like who I am and the things that I'm interested in. And um, you know, as a as a user of Twitter, and I would have to say in a very self-aware way as, a, as, as some of the verified account on the platform. Um, the experience that I have with it is, is generally wonderful. There is an element of doom scrolling to it, um, you know, but I would say that um, it's been indispensable for me from a business perspective. Um, the, uh, the second app, um, this one's random, is, um, is an app called Channels, it's the Channels app. Mm. Um, and um, I, I live a cable box free lifestyle as a result of it, um, you know, and so uh, it's, I encourage, it's, it's uh, I think it's like getchannels.com, I think is the URL to, to find out about it, but um, I love it and it's now on every TV in my house. Um, and then um, the last one is, uh, is a, believe it or not, it's a mail app hmm. called Spark, M-A-I-L, um, called Spark. 
Um, and um, it's made by um, a company called Riedel, but I found it to be um, the best uh, mailbox, multiple account management um, mail client um, of them all. So th those are the three that I would say I, I can't leave out right now. I'd say Slack too, but I feel like every, that's a com too common of an answer. Well, it's, I'll have to check Spark out. I haven't heard of that one yet. Yeah, Every, you know, Superhuman and heard of others, but uh, yeah, I actually moved off of Superhuman to Spark. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Um, any podcast recommendations, book recommendations that you'd uh, reference? Yeah. So um, my podcast uh, consumption has been totally warped because of the loss of my commute. Mm -hmm. um, so. Um, I don't do that as, 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 as much as, as I did. I, I'm still on a steady diet of like some ringer podcasts, um, you know, and, um, and the daily, um, which is one that I, that I still have in regular rotation from New York times, but um, from a book um, standpoint, um, from a current events thing, um, Stacey Abrams book, our time is now, mm -hmm. um, is, is absolutely fantastic. I'm three quarters of the way through. Um, and it is, um, it's a really great analysis of the situation that we're in and living through. Um, and obviously it was written before this very moment, um, but I don't think has been any more relevant than it is in this moment. So I strongly recommend reading it now. Um, the others are timeless. Um, and I would say, um, this is a one-two punch. These are two books that you should read back to back. The first is um, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. Mm. And The Chaser, is um, Everything Bad is Good for You by Stephen Johnson. Okay. Um, and they're, I just think they're great treatises on um, how the media affects us, how it affects our psyche, mm -hmm. changes our behaviors, and whether, that not, whether or not that's a good or bad thing. And I think these mm -hmm. two guys have, have um, great um, differing perspectives on this and they both make sense. And, you know, but the most important thing is that they agree on the facts. Mm. Interesting. I, I'll have to check those out too. Cause I did, I mean, this whole year with the media has been fascinating on so many levels of pandemic political elections. It's just been, you know, I, I with the pandemic side, I got, you know, I was dialed into the news and I, I was becoming a hypochondriac very quickly. And I'm like, this is not good for me. I need to just disengage, you know, maybe get the surface level tidbits of what's going on with the pandemic, but I need to, pull myself away from this daily news cycle that would just just get to me <laughs> well, that, that's look that's a byproduct of transparency right it's like you know transparency means like every bit of information every bit of data is out there and we lose the the um the curation of all of that mm -hmm. and i think that's um that curation the slower news cycle was because like there were more people spending time curating those facts putting them into digestible context. Instead, we're just given all of these data points for us to interpret. And um, the interpretation is where um, obviously like the, the differences are, like the way that Breitbart will, will report on a fact, if it's reporting on a fact, is very different than the way that a CNN might report on that fact. Right. Um, and, um, you know, but the, the problem is now that we can't even agree on the facts. Um, and I think that's, um, again, that, 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 that's what, again, it's a byproduct of transparency. And I, I, I hope we're in an awkward period of figuring it out. Um, but I, I, I would hope that the arbiters or the curators of what we see now, um, which, again, the platforms in some ways absolve themselves of that responsibility, 
um, and blame it on the algorithms, but they created the algorithms. Right. So it, it's super important for us to scrutinize those algorithms. Um, and, you know, cause I think it's, it's either the government is going to do something about them and you may, may or may not want that. Um, or, or we can pressure the companies that we do business with to do something about them, right. um, which is something that I would really love to see. Happen. What do you like to do for fun outside of work? <laughs> uh, make zoom pedals. Um, <laughs> um, I, 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 uh, look, I, I have three kids. Mm-hmm. I have three kids. I, I two, two, um, eight year olds and one about to be 12 year old. Okay. So, um, outside of work is still now is for the last six months has been inside my house. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's either, you know, driving them around to safe activities, helping them with schoolwork. Um, I, I've, I've decided that my, my, my hobbies are going to yep. be second place. Aligned. <laughs> yes. Every, like all of those hobbies, whatever they were from like, you know, I, I love collecting like art and sneakers and I clearly uh, like, uh, you know, I watch a lot of, like, and go to a lot of sports, but like a lot of those things are just either not happening anymore right now. Um, or they've been, um, you know, put pushed by the wayside on purpose. So um, I am, I am a devoted uh, dad. Um, and husband, uh, you know, in every minute that I am not spent working on this business. Um, and, you know, with the seemingly <laughs> few hours that are left um, outside of running this business um, and, and, and building this business along with my co-founders, like that is, um, um, that's got to be where I put my time. And um, especially because their time that they spend on their things has been so warped by this also, right? From school mm-hmm. to activities to their social lives. Um, so, um, I have that, that, that's first and foremost, my, my responsibility outside of work. Absolutely. Makes sense. And I was admiring the, uh, the, the, the sneakers in the background. I'm like, Oh, must be a sneaker head. He's got a collection in the background. I love it. It is, uh, also where, where culture and business meet. Um, and I think that's what, that's what drew me that. And the fact that my parents would only let me have one pair of sneakers at a time when I was a kid. Yeah, there you go. Well, Ian, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the you know great companies that you've been building, and of course, all the great advice for other entrepreneurs to follow. Thank you, Keith, for having me. I appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.